Hi, my name's Arthur Milliken, and this is Bible Curious, and exploration into the sacred scriptures driven by curiosity. I did not grow up with a religious background. My father took me to a sunrise Easter service a handful of times throughout my childhood, and I remember reading an illustrated book of Bible stories donated to me by a Jehovah's Witness sometime before I discovered Dungeons and Dragons at age eight. I found the stories vivid and memorable, but also strange and horrifying. I remember the story of Joseph and how his brothers threw him into a pit before selling him into slavery. I remember Jephthah, judge of Israel, who promised God in exchange for military victory that he would make a burnt offering of whatever came out of his door first upon returning home. He was horrified when his only daughter opened the door to greet him. I was horrified when I read that he did with her according to his vow. I read the four Gospels of the New Testament in my early 20s, but put down the Bible as soon as I tried reading the book of Romans and its hateful screed against homosexuals. It's a difficult book. However, what little I read left a strong impression on me, particularly the teachings of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 5-7, through seven, known as the Sermon on the Mount. Here, Jesus lays out a code of conduct that is undisputably right when it comes to making the world a better place, but seemingly impossible to follow given the troubled and dangerous world we live in. Nevertheless, I was driven by curiosity to try living by that code of conduct, to see if it actually worked in practice. While I can't say that I've been perfectly successful in that experiment, I can say that whenever I did follow these rules, my life definitely improved. Fast forward a couple of decades. I came back to this text, the Holy Bible, this year, in 2018. I'm now 43 years old. So why now? What drove me back to this book after all this time? The answer is curiosity. According to Wikipedia, the population of planet Earth is 33% Christian. It's 24% Muslim, and the Quran does acknowledge the Bible as Holy Scripture. Between these two faiths, that's over half of Earth's population. If I was an alien coming to this planet for the first time and I wanted to play a game of take me to your leader, it wouldn't take long before I found this book in my hands. If I want to understand this planet, I need to know what's in this text. To ignore it, or to dismiss it casually, is to cast aside the very underpinnings of Western civilization, which is the dominant culture of this planet. I mean, aren't you at least curious about what it actually says? I know I was. So I finally read it. All of it. I read it out loud to myself. I found that it's not the book that I thought it was. I also found that reading it changed me. I'm not the same person I was when I started. This series is an attempt to document this journey, to share what I found when reading the text, 
and to try to understand what relevance, if any, it might have to today's world and today's challenges. It is my sincere hope that you, the listener, might find it valuable as well. I'm organizing this series based on the principle that you're a busy person with a limited amount of time, so I'm going to start with the most recognizable or culturally relevant passages so that you can decide sooner rather than later whether or not there's anything here for you. With that said, let's start with Exodus chapter 20, known popularly as the Ten Commandments. This part of the story takes place about 1500 BC. God's chosen people, the Israelites, found themselves camped in the Sinai Desert after being liberated from four centuries of slavery to the Egyptian pharaohs. The harrowing account of their escape includes many miraculous signs and wonders, including ten horrible plagues visited upon the people of Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea and subsequent drowning of the Egyptian army, and the emergence of the great prophet Moses, who acts as an agent of the Lord's will. In Hebrew versions of the Bible, God is named Yahweh, but the King James Bible and most English translations substitute the word L-O-R-D in capital letters for this sacred name. Once liberated, This tribal people proved to be rebellious, contentious, and generally misbehaved. Moses found himself spending most of his time settling disputes between rival families, and so Yahweh calls everyone before Mount Sinai to lay down the law, the Torah, in specific terms. God spoke all these words, saying, I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves an idol, nor any image of anything that is in the heavens above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow yourself down to them, nor serve them. For I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and on the fourth generation of those who hate me, and showing loving kindness to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of Yahweh, your God, for Yahweh will not hold him guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You shall labor six days and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to Yahweh your God. You shall not do any work in it, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your livestock, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days Yahweh made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land which Yahweh your God gives you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. 
You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. All the people perceived the thunderings, the lightnings, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. When the people saw it, they trembled and stayed at a distance. They said to Moses, Speak with us yourself, and we will listen, but don't let God speak with us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Don't be afraid, for God has come to test you, and that his fear may be before you, that you won't sin. The people stayed at a distance, and Moses came near to the thick darkness where God was. Now, if I'm not mistaken, this is the only account in the Old Testament where Yahweh speaks in public before thousands of eyewitnesses, hundreds of thousands, if you take the Bible at its word. All the people perceived the thunderings, the lightnings, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. Not only did Yahweh speak from the mountain, he was so loud and so terrifying that the Israelites were literally afraid that his voice might kill them. This scene reminds me of a similar scene in the movie The Wizard of Oz, where a loud, billowing, disembodied head shouts at Dorothy and her friends until he is revealed to be an old man hiding behind a curtain. It's not obvious from the biblical account who might be the man behind the curtain in this case. It definitely wasn't Moses, since he was standing in plain view of everyone and wasn't the one speaking. It probably wasn't his brother Aaron either, because he was already given to public speaking and the Israelites would certainly have recognized his voice. However, there is one person mentioned in the Bible who might have been able to pull this off, and that's Jethro, Moses' father-in-law and mentor, who is also named Rauel, which in Hebrew means friend of God. Jethro was a Midianite priest, and Moses studied under him for 40 years, before beginning his work as a prophet. For those of you listening at home who are willing to do a little homework, go ahead and look up Jethro and Rauel and read those passages concerning this man and make up your own mind about whether or not Jethro might have been the mastermind behind the revelation at Sinai. This is all the time I'm willing to dedicate at the moment to this particular conspiracy theory because ultimately, it's far less important than the actual content of this pronouncement. What are the Ten Commandments? What is this law that the Israelites are now expected to obey? Who is Yahweh, and by what authority does he speak? I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. The ancient world at the time of Moses was populated by many gods, the Egyptians, who kept the Israelites as slaves for 400 years, were an intensely polytheistic culture with hundreds, if not thousands, of gods, each with their own domain or sphere of influence. Here, Yahuwah reveals himself as a personal god, a god of liberation who took a specific interest in the Israelites, his chosen people. His authority rests on a simple fact. The Israelites were once slaves, and now they are free. This is a God who produces actual, 
tangible results, and as such, he insists that he be ranked first among gods. Note that at this point in the narrative, Yahweh does acknowledge that other gods do exist, but as this first commandment states, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves an idol, nor any image of anything that is in the heavens above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow yourself down to them, nor serve them, for I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God. The second commandment is an injunction against idolatry, or the worship of inanimate objects. There are good reasons for such a law. The first is that it discourages superstition, and the belief that such objects could deliver you results based upon your prayers. Second, it prevents a church or priesthood from endorsing superstitious behavior, or worse, from encouraging worship of other gods and thus undermining the absolute authority of Yahweh, the living God, who is also a jealous God. Yahweh is comparing his relationship with the Israelites to the relationship between a husband and his wife. Your husband might not be the only man there is, but he is the only man for you. Monotheism is like monogamy. It is built upon faithfulness. You shall not misuse the name of Yahweh your God. Don't swear. Your word should be enough without using God's name to add emphasis to whatever you're saying. Interestingly, when Moses was first approached by Yahweh to become a prophet, he asked about this topic. Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 to 14. Moses said to God, Behold, when I come to the children of Israel and tell them the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, You shall tell the children of Israel this, I am has sent me to you. I am. Try asking yourself this question. Who is God? Then answer yourself, I am. One way to misuse this name is to use it to put yourself down. For example, I am stupid. I am weak. I am helpless. This is blasphemy, according to the third commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. As far as I can tell, this concept was an invention of the Hebrews. For a people who spent the last 400 years in slavery, the Sabbath was an absolutely necessary practice to stay free. One thing they could not do as slaves was to take one day off out of every seven. Once you've made a commitment to keeping the Sabbath, if you ever find yourself working on that Sabbath, you know that you have slid back into slavery. There's another benefit to the Sabbath observance, rest. One day per week, allow the earth to spin on its own accord, without you having to push it along. Remind yourself that there's more to life than just work. Also, that you don't have to sacrifice your holy day to try to get ahead of your neighbor. Take a load off. Relax. Honor your father and mother. If there's anybody worthy of criticism, it's going to be your parents. Why? because you've seen them at their most vulnerable, under the greatest duress. If they have any secrets, you know them. If they've ever done anything wrong, you were probably there. Cut them a little slack, they deserve it. If you aren't willing to care for them, who will? 
something else to consider. You came from them. Everything that they are, you are too. If you can't respect them, how can you respect yourself? And how will your children follow your example? You shall not murder. Of course, I couldn't resist asking the question, well, what if you're a soldier and required to kill others in the line of duty? And the answer is, well, that may be tragic and regrettable. It's not the topic of this particular law. Don't kill your neighbor or your fellow countrymen. In the New Testament, Jesus expands the definition of neighbor to include all of humanity, but that's not to come for another 15 centuries. You shall not commit adultery. If you're a man, don't make another man raise your biological children. If you're a woman, don't make your husband raise another man's children. That's irresponsible and messed up. Even when there are no accidental children resulting from such trysts, the damage it does to a faithful relationship isn't worth it. It's the pleasure of a moment compared to years of suspicion, mistrust, and resentment. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not covet. Don't cheat. Don't try to get ahead by dishonest means. Don't try to get ahead at the expense of your neighbor. Don't become a slave to your own greed. Remember, Yahweh is the God of freedom, the God of liberation. Above all, this means freedom from the limitations which arise from the belief that your possessions are what define you. You are better than that. You can create from the bounty of your own competence, the bounty of your own faith in yourself. You don't need to take anything from others in order to enjoy the abundance of life. The secret hidden in plain sight is that a commitment to the Lord is a commitment to yourself. Yahweh is a jealous God because he will not permit you to give away your personal power. He will not permit you to sabotage your own dignity or self-respect. He will not permit you to throw away your sovereignty as an individual who is in charge of your own destiny. He will not permit you to sell yourself back into slavery. That is the proposition offered by this God and by this book. By entering into a covenant with the Lord, you are making a commitment to your own self-liberation and to eternal life, even if you aren't quite sure what is meant by eternal life. That's how I read it. Let me spend just a moment addressing the references to slavery and the status of women in this ancient society. Looking at this document from the modern lens of today's social norms, it's clear that different classes of people had different rights and obligations under the law. I don't want to get into the weeds on this. It's a relic of the time when these stories were written down, and one of the things I found refreshing about the Bible is that it hasn't been editorialized to make it more agreeable to modern readers. We're getting a clear lens into the values and spiritual practices of an ancient people who lived thousands of years ago, and we don't have to rewrite their history in order to learn from their example. Many of these lives were deeply flawed even barbaric in some of the details which are preserved. What I find uplifting is that even in the most tragic and barbaric of times, there was this golden thread of redemption which guided these people through their troubled history into a better future. One of the Ten Commandments is to honor your father and mother. 
this includes honoring past generations and their struggles to survive against all odds. The Greatest Commandment From the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, verses 28 to 34. One of the scribes came and heard them questioning together, and knowing that he had answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the greatest of all? Jesus answered, The greatest is, Hear, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. The second is like this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Alright, if ten commandments are too many to keep track of, then here's an even simpler and more concise summary, one form of what we now know as the golden rule. In this passage, Jesus is quoting two statements from the book of Deuteronomy attributed to Moses. Note, however, the primacy of loyalty to the Lord. There's a commitment which must be made before this spiritual covenant can truly take effect. And so this entire document takes the form of a proposal. If you commit yourself to the cosmic law contained within these pages, then you can partake of the benefits of citizenship. It also seems to me that the terms of this covenant can only really be evaluated from within the covenant itself. It does no good to criticize it from the outside because we're talking about a personal commitment to a personal code of ethics. And the only person who can truly judge your faithfulness to that covenant is yourself. One thing I noticed about these stories is that they are very critical toward the characters contained within them. With the exception of Jesus himself, Every character written about in these pages is guilty of something, and many are guilty of a great many sinful acts. It's easy to criticize these characters because that's the whole point. The overarching message is that everyone is capable of good, and everyone is capable of evil. That's precisely what it means to have free will. What does it mean to have knowledge of good and evil, of sin and redemption? It means having this written record containing abundant examples of both sides of this polarity. In the account of the Garden of Eden, Adam precipitates the fall of man in this 4,000-year story by eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This collection of stories is literally the fruit of that very tree. Aren't you a little bit curious about what it might have to say? I know I am.